Welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be discussing what traditional martial artists can learn from MMA. Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest podcast. A few quick announcements before we get into the main part of this month's podcast. Uh, the first thing is that we've set up a donation section on the shopping side of the website, and that's for people who want to uh, give some financial support to uh, for all the free material we bring you, including these uh, these podcasts. There's a few people who asked about that and um, initially hesitant, but I can see the value in it. The way the way it's always worked in the past is we've always taken the money from the the books, the DVDs, people attending the seminars. We've put it in a big pot and we've used that to finance other things, uh, to pay for my time, and also to bring all the free material including these uh, these monthly podcasts. Um, but again, we've got a few people who said, you know, they don't read books or they don't watch DVDs, they live too far away to go to seminars, but they still want to add some support to the uh, the, the podcast, which is, you know, is, is great. So we've set that up. The way we've kind of worked it out was there's three levels of donations, if you want to make any, so, and it averages out over a year as 50p a month, a pound a month or two pound a month. So basically six pound, 12 pounds, 24 pounds. Um, if you want to make a donation, you can uh, pop along to the, the uh, shopping side of the website and do that. N- absolutely no obligation on you t- to do that. You know, if you if you um, don't want to do that, or you don't think the podcasts are worth it, or or, or or you simply you know you don't have the money spare, that all that's fine. You don't have to do it. But if you want to, obviously the support helps. So we've set that up on there, and in return for everyone who is kind enough to uh, donate and who's able to donate. We've set it up so you get a unique uh, download link, uh, which has got about a half a, a gigabyte worth of uh, information. So it's all the stuff we've brought you in the past for, for free. So there's every podcast we've ever done since we started um, up, up to, to this one is included um, included in that. We've got some free books on there, uh, some workout MP3s along with the videos and everything. So uh, it's just downloaded all in one click and you've got um, a great big back catalogue of all the free stuff we've done. Uh, and again, obviously, your support helps you us bring you more free stuff in the future. I also want to make a, um, a donator's list, really. So uh, people who do donate, I'm going to make a little uh, list of email addresses on there and things, and then I'll drop people a little note saying... Uh, letting them know of exclusive little things we've got and ways of saying thank you. So the first one that I'll have ready soon is some ringtones for mobile phones. So we've had people asking about the music that we use on the podcasts. So um, we've got uh, Colin has very kindly produced some uh, uh, ringtones on that. So the in iPod format and MP3 format and everything else. So we're providing them to the donators uh, in the not too distant future. Um, okay, so the next thing is the Combat Coach program. Well, that's obviously fully live now, and we're rolling that out. If you don't know what that is, you can pop along to the main page of ianabernethy.com. Uh, just look halfway down; you'll see the link there under the special announcements section. Uh, you'll also find a link to it at the base of the forum as well, if you look on the website. Uh, and that's for people who, uh, with a martial arts background mainly, who want to um, expand what they're doing to include all the wider things that you really should know if you're teaching. Uh, uh, self-protection, so you, you know about uh, perceptions of fear of crime, uh, the law, uh, dealing with edge weapons, dealing with, with, with blunt weapons, dealing with multiple opponents, uh, conflict management skills, uh, uh, right the way up to uh, weapon retention techniques, uh, handcuffing techniques, uh, bomb awareness. It covers a whole package, and it's up to you to decide what level you want to come in.
coming at and obviously when you want to start it and when you want to finish it it's it's done on an individual basis so for those that want to study that kind of things and do a little bit of training with me um on like a one-to-one basis we also have a distant learning option as well so uh, but that will obviously involve interaction with me uh, uh, via various electronic media so uh, have a look at that anyway so just let you know that's that's up and running now and the final thing to mention is just the uh, podcasts themselves Uh, i am aware that they are getting quite a bit longer (laughs) <laughs> and the general consensus is people like it, so I'm, I'm, that's that's great with me. And the reason they've got a bit longer, of course, is uh, the main parts are getting a bit lengthier, uh, and we're also we've added the question and answer sections on the end as well, um, which again people seem to really like. But let me know what you think. If you think we're doing too many questions, or you'd like fewer, or you know, the, the your podcast. So please give me feedback via uh, Facebook or Twitter or via the website, and uh, obviously we'll take that into account. So the main part of this month's podcast is a discussion on uh, traditional martial arts uh, and uh, mixed martial arts and how the two interrelate. In particular, assuming that most people listening to this will be traditional martial artists, uh, the podcast looks at what traditional martial artists can learn from uh, from MMA. As always, it's just my own views. I'm aware that sometimes they can be perceived as being a little bit controversial, but I'm just honestly telling you uh, what I think and how I, uh, how I see it. And obviously this... There's no obligation on you to agree. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think that'll do for this introduction. Uh, We'll now start looking at what traditional martial artists can learn from MMA. MMA, or mixed martial arts, is without a doubt the biggest thing to happen to the martial arts in the last few decades. It has seen the martial arts become mainstream as a spectator sport for the very first time, and it's had a very big influence on the martial arts generally. In some quarters, it's now common to divide the martial arts into the two camps of MMA and TMA, or traditional martial arts, with each side seeing as being uh, opposed to the other. The more fundamentalist MMA practitioners see traditional martial arts as archaic and ineffective systems, and the more militant traditional martial artists see MMA as lacking in discipline, depth or technical quality. I mean, personally, I think both these conflicting viewpoints are are wrong. My own take on things is that these two approaches have more common ground than is first supposed, and that both approaches have much to gain if they were to emulate the best aspects of each other. Assuming that most listening to this podcast will be traditional martial artists, this month I'd like to explore what traditional martial arts can learn from MMA. And we'll also discuss one or two things that maybe MMA can learn from the traditional martial arts as well. In order to put the discussion in the right context, there are a few things I'd like to make clear um, to begin with. I mean, the first thing is, I like MMA. I like watching the sport. I think MMA has done much for the martial arts generally. And I think it has many qualities that the traditional martial artists would do well to emulate. But all of that said, MMA is not for me. All martial artists have to find an approach to the martial arts that engages and enthuses them. They need to find an approach that meets their training objectives and delivers the skills and experiences that they want. For me, that has been the traditional martial art of karate. Um, I've you know, studied a number of different arts, but it's a karate that fascinates me and that has me prepared to spend hour after hour, month after month, decade after decade, training hard into order to you know, advance what I do. Now, for others, it will be MMA that resonates them with them in that way, but it wasn't for me. MMA simply doesn't do it for me. It, it, it's a matter of personal taste, and I'm not making a statement of inherent value here. You know, all I'm saying is that I need something with a deep past and a history. I like to feel part of that chain from the forgotten past to the unknown future. 
I like the process of delving into that deep past and seeing what is relevant to me today. MMA, as good as it is, is a little young for me. However, I can see that that youth would be the very thing that would be attractive to others. So while I like MMA, it's not for me personally, and I consider myself firmly to be a traditional martial artist. This exploration of uh, MMA's value to traditional martial arts is therefore not done from a position of either being inherently pro or anti-MMA. You know, it's just a look at the plain facts as, as I see them. The other thing we need to make clear is that I'm fully aware within both MMA and within the traditional martial arts is a wide range of views and activities. So my comments and criticisms certainly won't apply to all and may not apply to you, dear listener. So I'm using the terms in a general sense, which I feel will be generally appropriate for most of the practitioners who use those labels. Okay, so here we go. So what can the traditional martial artist learn from MMA? Well, number one, MMA is objective-driven. MMA practitioners know what they're training for. They know what it takes to win an MMA bout, and their training is focused on that. I mean, as I covered in the uh, Martial Map uh, podcast earlier in the year, most traditional martial artists are confused about their training objectives. They use the terms martial arts, fighting, and self-defense like they're interchangeable, whereas in reality they represent very different things. The most common example is the confusion between uh, art and culture and practical self-defense. You know, with people practicing one believing they're doing the other. No, oh, but okay, so there are some MMA people who get confused about this too. I've had many discussions with MMA people who believe that MMA is the ultimate answer to self-defense, and it's not. Self-defense has to give priority to wider security issues. It needs to cover escaping, cover the law, teach awareness skills, and so on. MMA will cover the no-option-but-to-fight side of things very well, uh, providing they practice those skills in order to facilitate escape as opposed to always fighting to the finish. But it's a big mistake to reduce self-defense just to the physical and to ignore all the other far more important elements. All of this said, I think it would be fair to say that MMA people are generally not as confused about this as traditional martial artists tend to be. Generally speaking, MMA people train to win MMA fights. Because they have a clear objective, their training is focused and they get good results. Traditional martial artists are often unclear why they are training. They just train and everything gets lumped together in an unfocused, homogenous mass. Traditional martial artists need to know what training methods will develop what attributes so the various elements of what they do can be most effectively developed. MMA practitioners tend to avoid any confusion and are more goal-focused in their training. They also know how to isolate specific skills and how to train to develop those specific aspects of what they do. Generally speaking, MMA practitioners are more goal-focused on objective-driven than their traditional counterparts. Now, that's not to say that MMA is better than traditional martial arts. I'm simply pointing out the first element of MMA that I feel traditional martial artists would do well to emulate. The irony with much of this is that the past masters were very objective-driven, and hence emulating MMA in this regard is actually returned to the past. It's only when traditional martial arts took their eye off the ball by divorcing practice from function that this became a problem. Now, this leads us to the issue of testing. Now, the second area where I think traditional martial artists could learn a lot from MMA is that, number two, MMA tests everything. Now, I know plenty of traditional martial artists who do too, but I still think it would be fair to say uh, there are many who do not test what they do. MMA practitioners test everything they do. I don't know a single MMA person who does not pressure test and drill live. Through live drilling, the MMA practitioner has actual live experience. They know what a fight feels like, they know what works and what does not. 
More importantly, the live experience helps them to learn why what works works. They get things in uh, on a conceptual level, and the sound combative principles get fully ingrained. Things that are inherently flawed don't survive the testing process, and hence they get dropped by the wayside. They behold the nothing. Because of the rapid evolution of MMA, what worked 10 years ago doesn't work well today, and they don't hold on to that outdated material, but instead concentrate what, on what is known to work well in the here and now. Now, have you ever seen anything that resembles standard Ippon Kumite or one-step sparring in a real fight, where one person like drops into Gadambarai, steps forward, sticks a fist out, stands there, or um, blocks you know, with a hand on the hip, then counters, you know... You, have you ever seen anything like that in a real fight? Because I never have. And I don't know anyone who ever has. And if you to try and test such methods in live practice, you'd realise they simply don't work. The reason these strange practices persist in some areas of the traditional martial arts is it's those same areas that don't test things. Allow a partner, ideally not another karateka, to do whatever they wish. And uh, as they can do in a real fight. And try to use the methods of Ippon Kumite and see where it gets you. Do you know, try and you know, um, step back and, and block a punch with the hand on the hip in Zen Kutsudat. Just, just try it, it just won't work. So, I mean, testing will strip away all the unnecessary baggage that some traditional martial arts have acquired over the years. The trouble, though, is that too many martial artists, traditional martial artists, don't test. Uh, testing would also help bring to the surface all the good material that traditional martial arts contain, as well as stripping away the excesses. Uh, one of the reasons that Katra is so badly understood is a lack of testing. If we test what methods work best in the close and chaotic world of close-range conflict, we would start to see how relevant the motions of Kata are to that environment. However, because testing is nowhere near as prevalent as it should be, impractical explanations of Katra persist. These inaccurate and impractical applications would not survive testing and hence would disappear overnight. I mean, karate as a whole can only benefit from that. MMA people also don't get bogged down in the bizarre theoretical discussions that traditional martial artists are sometimes prone to. The reason being that all theories are put to the, the test, the, the, the put into practice, and hence the validity of each theory has an objective test. This is also the reason why you don't see any MMA practitioners believing they can knock people over without touching them and other such magical feats. If you objectively test, all the nonsense does not pass that test, and that's why it's so important. There are plenty of traditional martial artists who do test what they do, of course, and I've discussed my own take on that in previous podcasts. Uh, my Katabe Sparring DVD, my Bunkai Jitsu book, and the introduction Introduction to Applied Karate ebook all contain information on how I think live testing and live practice apply to traditional karate. Um, but anyway, before we leave this, I need to make it clear that the type of testing is also a vital consideration. What passes the test in an MMA bout may not pass the test in self-defense training. For example, a successful takedown, getting the mountain position, and delivering a whole host of strikes would lead to victory in MMA. Now, the ground and pound work great. The same method in self-defense is likely to lead to you being repeatedly stabbed, kicked, and beaten by your attackers' accomplices as you put yourself in a very vulnerable position and made it harder for you to escape. Now, if you listen to this and you think I've just said that MMA is ineffective in self-defense, listen again, because I haven't. It's all a matter of context, and I suggest the Marshall Map podcast would be a good listen if you're confused about this. The point is that live testing needs to be relevant to the objective. 
If we're training for self-defense, then we need to test live with simulated weapons, multiple enemies, have the primary objective being escaping, and so on. MMA practitioners test what they do, and hence their training increases in efficiency. Because not enough traditional martial artists test what they do, then impractical methods remain unchallenged. Uh, testing should be a part of traditional practice, as it is for many, but not for enough, however. And, as before, by emulating this aspect of MMA, traditional martial artists would actually be returning to the true tradition where functionality is the key concern. Well, this leads us to our third point, and third thing I think that traditional martial artists can learn from MMA. So, MMA is happy to innovate and does not place style purity or other such notions ahead of function. One of the least traditional things found in modern traditional martial arts, if you'll forgive the oxymoron, is the idea that things must never change, particularly when that change can be shown to increase combative efficiency. In traditional arts, things like modern notions of keeping the style pure, or the semi-divine dictates of a given master or group head, the unerring adherence to an untested theory, and so on, all these things are deemed more imp uh, important than function. MMA does not suffer from this at all, as can be seen by its uh, rapid evolution in recent times. The value of any technique or training method is determined solely by its functional value. If it can be de demonstrated that a technique or training method can be improved upon, then MMA people tend to wholeheartedly embrace that improvement. Conversely, a lot of traditionalists view such improvements and innovations as a form of blasphemy, or of those suggesting these improvements as getting above their station. MMA has a much healthier attitude to change. If something can be demonstrated to be better, then they accept uh, that change because of its obvious value. They also see such change as a fulfilment of what went before and not as the rejection of it. As an example, in the early days of the UFC, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu alone really was what was needed to secure a win. As MMA progressed, that was no longer the case and other skills needed to be brought in. However, you don't see MMA people slighting the contributions that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu made to the sport, as those contributions are, quite rightly, still held in very high regard. You know, even though things have, have, have moved on, people don't forget their origins in MMA. You also don't see MMA pr practitioners criticising the changes to MMA as being a kind of egotistical sacrilege. MMA builds on what went before in order to continually improve. Hence, both what went before and the improvements are valued. The work of trainers, teachers and fighters, past and present, are all seen as working towards a common goal and being a vital part of the growth of MMA. Sadly, the traditional martial arts, generally speaking, do not have such a healthy attitude. The result is stagnation and perhaps even the death of those quarters that see growth as being a negative and destructive thing, which of course it isn't. None of the past masters were adverse to change in growth. I mean, that's how the styles they created came into being in the first place. Gichin Funakoshi wrote in Karate Do My Way of Life that times change, the world changes, and obviously the martial arts must change too. It's quite sad that many modern traditionalists disagree with him. Once again, what is frequently and widely accepted as being traditional is not, and perhaps paradoxically, the attitude MMA has to change in growth is more in line with the thinking of the past masters. Another area where Funakoshi and his contemporaries would be closer uh, to MMA than maybe traditionalists of today is in the area of cross-training.
When talking about his two main karate teachers, Funakoshi said, uh, Both Azato and his good friend Itosu suffered at least one quality of greatness. They suffered no petty jealousy of other masters. They would present me to teachers of their acquaintance, urging me to learn from each the techniques at which they excelled. Ordinary karate instructors, in my experience, are reluctant to allow their pupils to study under instructors of other schools, but this was far from true of either Izato or Itosu. So here we see that, as a student, Funakoshi was encouraged to learn methods from other teachers in order to make them part of his karate. There's no worry about perverting the style, only desire to ensure that Funakoshi was exposed to the best methods uh, out there. None of my teachers followed the example of what Funakoshi would call ordinary karate instructors. They all encouraged me to seek out what I could find and, if I found something of value, to make it part of what I do. Sadly, many others are forbidden to train with people from outside their dojo or school. And bringing in other methods is again seen as treason. I mean, obviously a free-for-all is not good and junior students are not well placed to be able to objectively assess the validity of any methods. However, I mean, I've seen third dans and above actively discouraged to seek excellence and to make it part of what they do. If people are incapable of making solid value judgments at third dan and beyond, you have to question the quality of the training that led them there. In MMA, it's very common for the top athletes to seek instruction from specialists to improve various aspects of their game. They have a wrestling coach, a boxing coach, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, a conditioning coach and so on. It's acknowledged that no one person can be an expert in everything, and hence you will not find the best answer to everything from one single person. Traditionalists sometimes hold the opposite view that a single master or his methods, i.e. the style that he formulated, will be supreme in all regards. This is obviously flawed and can be extremely limiting. In my case, I've always sought to take the best all my teachers had to offer and make it mine. And all my teachers encouraged me to do just that. They knew what their strengths were, and their egos were not so uh, fragile that they demanded I remain blind to where they were not so strong. They wanted the best for me, and I remain loyal and grateful to all of them as a result. Um, like one of uh, Peter Constantine, who's uh, obviously the ninth dad I train with a lot, I mean, he said, you know, he says, as soon as you build walls around people, the first thing they want to do is climb over them. Um, so again, you know, his thinking would be very much in line with um, Furukoshi's. The example of my teachers is something I want to follow. You know, I know where I'm strong, where I'm competent, and where I'm weak. I want my students to build on what I give them and to seek out instruction in the areas for, that are not my field. Um, it's for this reason that we regularly have other people teaching our dojo and why my students regularly attend the seminars of other teachers. No, and I'm not done myself, of course. I'm still trying to improve what I do uh, in order to honour my teachers, to ensure I do the best by my students and for myself. However, for many, the way I approach things is seen as a rejection of that which came before uh, rather than the fulfilment of it. I'm aware that some traditionalists see me as a heretic, and hence the greatly troubled that, you know, what I do as a following. But that's okay, though, because, you know, there are many other traditionalists who feel that what I do is as traditional as it gets, uh, and they see me as a great supporter of the traditional arts, you know. But ultimately, ultimately, I mean, none of it really matters, as, you know, I'm making progress myself, and those who train with me benefit from what I'm doing. At the end of his uh, Shitoru Shukakai Kata manual, um, Haru Yoshi Yamada, ninth dan, who's a student of Tani, who's the founder of Shukakai, and I once had the pleasure of interviewing him for uh, Traditional Karate magazine, and I trained on, uh, underneath him on a couple of occasions when I visited Japan. But, I mean, he wrote uh, the final line of his, his book, he says, 
I conclude by saying, as my honoured teacher before me, I am not content just to teach, but wish to contribute my experience to the study of karate. I mean, I really like that. I think we all have an obligation to pass on our personal experiences um, to karate. Through the Shuhari process, as explained in my article, Styles, Are They Killing Karate? And there's a podcast by the, the same name as well, which dis discusses that. Um, I, I don't want to just pass on what I got, having made absolutely no contribution to it. And I'm, I don't think we, any of us should either. We should all seek out the best instruction we can, and aim to become the best martial artist that we can, so that our contributions are of value to those who come after us. MMA seems to inherently get this idea, and that's why MMA has evolved so much. Uh, much more in its short life than the traditional martial arts have done in the same time frame. There are some who hold that the traditional martial arts have reached perfection, and hence they can evolve no further. However, I think this is a deluded view, and it's simply a result of a lack of testing that we mentioned earlier. Um, if they were to test, they might realise that you know they haven't reached the state of perfection they, they think they have. Innovation and evolution, with a view to ever-increasing efficiency, were fundamental to the traditional martial arts. Sadly, that has been lost by many traditionalists. Again, if we were to follow the example of MMA in this regard, we would be returning to the true tradition and would reap the, uh, the benefits of, of doing so. The fourth area where traditional martial artists could learn from MMA is that the importance of physical conditioning in MMA is fully understood. From both a practical and lifestyle perspective, there are massive benefits from being in shape. I mean, obviously, the extreme level of fitness of the elite MMA athlete is something beyond those not training full-time. However, even recreational MMA practitioners understand the importance of being in good condition. The training reflects this and hence has a solid physical component. Many traditional martial artists barely breaks, uh, break sweat in practice. And this does not prepare them for the rigours of conflict, nor does it bring positive uh, health and lifestyle benefits. I mean, one of the things that always amuses me is the low value placed on martial arts by the British medical services. Uh, on every health checkup I've ever had, you know, the doctors rank the martial arts uh, below the jogging that I do. When I've asked why martial arts are viewed as having so little health benefit, I'm normally told it's because they don't raise the, uh, the heart rate enough. I mean, don't raise the heart rate enough. I mean, I sometimes feel like my heart's about to beat its way out my chest in a bid to escape what it's been put through. Um, but, you know, to be fair to the doctor, the reasoning behind this is probably accurate. For most, the martial arts probably don't raise the heart rate enough due to the pedestrian way in which they're practiced. It's quite common to see karate downgrades who are out of shape. Now, I don't mean all downgrades have to be hyper-fit, but assuming they're not ill or injured, and hence unable to train, uh, they should also not be several stone overweight and out of breath having walked up a few flights of stairs. You simply don't see out-of-shape MMA guys with the same frequency you see out-of-shape traditionalists. It is my view that traditional martial arts would do well to emulate their MMA counterparts in this regard too and ensure that physical conditioning and hard training are par for the course. Now, having talked about the areas where traditionalists would do well to emulate MMA practitioners, we should probably quickly touch on the other side of things. MMA practitioners generally don't spend enough time developing technique to the same level that traditionalists do. There's frequently an almost obsessive level of detail when it comes to traditional uh, martial arts uh, that begins with the very first class. 
a lot of people starting MMA simply want to get stuck in. And unfortunately, there's a lot of gyms that will cater to that. Without strong foundations, it's impossible to build to a great height. MMA practitioners sometimes limit the level they can reach through poor quality foundations. Um, traditionalists often limit the level they can reach by spending all their time on the foundations and never building upwards. Uh, traditionalists also tend to place a greater emphasis on humility and hence are less prone to some of the more aggressive and arrogant attitudes we see in some quarters of the MMA world. The infusion of desirable character traits into training is therefore something that could be of benefit. I mean, all the way through this, we've been talking in generalities, uh, but it must be acknowledged that these generalities can uh, obscure the detail of the truth of the situation. I know a lot of MMA practitioners who have amazing technique and are really nice people. I also know plenty of traditionalists with very poor technique who are insecure, arrogant, and no fun at all to be around. Although we can see general trends, all approaches have good and bad within them. No one approach can universally be deemed to be the ultimate. Whilst there may not be the majority, there are also many traditionalists who are objective-driven, who do test everything, who are happy to innovate and build up on what went before, and who do understand the importance of physical conditioning. Likewise, there are MMA people at all levels who have incredible technique and who are really good people. The stereotypes, if we can use that word in this context, of MMA and traditional martial arts exist for a reason, but they're far from universal. The bottom line is that the best in uh, MMA and the best in the traditional martial arts will share many common traits, just as the worst in both will as well. Ultimately, it's not about what we do, but how we do it. The best MMA practitioners and the best traditionalists will probably have far more in common than the best traditionalists will have in common with the worst traditionalists. What determines common ground is, as just mentioned, not what we do, but how we do it. Many of the good things uh, that MMA does are also encouraged by the masters of the past. However, it doesn't really matter from where excellence originates. Best practice is best practice. And we should always uh, emulate excellence whenever we can. By not looking at what other approaches have to offer and what we can learn from them, we lose the opportunity to improve and to make objective, critical comparisons with what we currently do. Uh, remember that, you know, Gichin Funakoshi, the father of modern karate himself, said he was urged by his teachers to learn what others excelled at. And I think we should follow his example. There is much that MMA gives us traditionalists to emulate, and we would be foolish, even untraditional, to ignore these things. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it's now time to look at this month's question and answer session. Uh, all these questions came from uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we asked for these questions uh, a couple of days uh, before recording uh, this podcast. Uh, so keep an eye on Facebook and Twitter for next month's questions. And uh, please feel free to submit any uh, issues you'd like us to cover. So we'll now move on to this month's uh, questions. Okay, so the first question we've got is by Carlos Rojas, and he said, you know, force is a function of both mass and acceleration, which should mean a fast strike is also a strong one. How do you recommend one trains to maximize speed and acceleration? 
So, so it's a good question, that. Now, I've probably got a slightly unusual take on it for most, all right? So the, the formula for power is force times distance over time taken, right? So in martial sense, because the distance is determined between you and your opponent, we basically know the more force we have and the less time we take, the more powerful a strike will be. So that's kind of like the basic physics of it. The, the trouble is, you can't really compare the way, like experiments that involve uh, firing a bullet down a, uh, or pushing a lead weight down a track in a laboratory with the way the human body moves. Um, they're, they're a bit different. So although the same laws of physics apply, the way in which you enact it will be different. Now the point of what I mean is this, is sometimes people have the mistaken view that speed is what you need to hit powerfully, and it's not. What you really need is the, the, the part of that, the kind of the, the, the numerator of our little um, equation a second ago, rather than the denominator. The bit on the top, what we need is, we need the maximum amount of weight into the technique. Now, if you try and deliver the technique as too quickly, which you sometimes see people do, so the hand just shoots out to the target. Now, because the arm can move faster than the body, you know, the body's obviously bigger, it's got more inertia, it takes a little bit more time to get going, the arm hits the target. Not the body, the arm, it's the target. And I think for most people, it's about 6% of your body weight is, is, is your arm. So you lose, in terms of the force you could have got into it, force um, times distance over time taken, you, you're losing 94% of that. And that's what you see an awful lot. So my thing was, if you're looking for power, seek power. Don't go seek speed, because the two are not quite the, the, the same. In terms of the way that, I'm not saying, obviously, you know, move slowly. You, you, you want to move at a, a, a pace, you know, but speed is more of a tactical thing. You know, you'd you use the speed to get your, your hand to the, the target before the opponent can react. And bizarrely, I don't want to go too far with this, but sometimes, especially in preemption, if you move too quickly, you trigger the opponent's innate um, uh, flinch responses. So if I move, you know, there's sudden like kind of crack and there's a really quick movement, a, a, a twitch, the opponent will intuitively respond to that or can intuitively respond to that. If you're slightly slower, right, don't, uh, it doesn't bring up that kind of like internal alarm system. They have to cognitively think about it. So it stands a better chance of getting in. Um, it's a bit bizarre, you know, and I'd really need to kind of demonstrate that in person, but it's true. If you throw your hands at people quickly and go block everyone, do that a few times and put one in a little bit slower. And it's amazing that they don't block it because they're not doing it on instinct now. They have to look at it and think, oh, what's that? Is that co and it, because the cognitive part of the brain's involved, the response is a lot slower. So we're maybe getting slightly off that, but I mean, speed is more uh, kind of tactical. When, in terms of getting weight into technique, what we need to ensure that we get our power into the technique, it's weight is the key thing, body weight. So and to me, it's all about the kime, the focus. It's getting your body weight uh, to move correctly getting all the parts of it to, uh, to come together. So at the point of impact, you've got the maximum amount of weight. So for, for, for me, that would mean starting from kind of from, from my from hips and my feet, spiraling the, the, the power up through the body, getting my mass moving, and the last thing to go is always the hand. When I say that, sometimes people think, oh, but your, your body movement would telegraph it. But it, just, trust me, it just doesn't work that way. You know, it all happens in the blink of an eye anyway. And if you get it right, the actual torque that you build up in the body will fire the hand out all the, the, the quicker anyway. But the, the, so the point is, all right, so when we're looking at power, 
seek power. Don't confuse speed with power because they're not the same thing sometimes. And a fast technique with no weight behind it, with no mass, will still be a weak technique. Now, in terms of, you know, how do you maximize speed and acceleration? The key way to train for that is in short bursts. It's, it's very common for people, oh, you know, I did like 100 roundhouse kicks on the bag or whatever. If you're doing that, that's great, and you're building up the endurance and, and your, your, your will and your muscle, your, uh, muscular conditioning. But if you're wanting to develop speed and power, you want a small number of techniques. So to use an example, a guy learning uh, to improve his sprinting, well, what he won't do is, okay, sprint 100 meters, turn around and sprint straight back. He gets there, stops, rests, recovers and say, right, I'm now ready to work my speed again. So my key thing would be, um, if you want to work on the speed, is to do it in short, sharp bursts. So a given technique, five, six repetitions max. You know, then kind of stop, change sides, whatever, keep yourself nice and fresh. So you're developing those kind of explosive uh, motions on those fast twitch uh, muscle fibers. So I hope that's of, of some interest to, to Carlos. The next question we've got, and everyone else, of course, the next question we've got is from uh, Stephen Sergener, and he says, uh, if modern technology didn't exist and you were creating a cat of the day to record some self-protection principles, would you include any avoidance or posturing aspects prior to showing you how to physically uh, damage the opponent or assailant? If so, can we find any non-combative aspects like this in, a, in any of the legacy kata? And if not, why not? So a couple of things on then. One is for me, for modern technology, that sometimes comes up. People say, oh, well, it, it, you know, we don't need kata anymore. We could record it on DVD or video or whatever else or in books and things. Uh, and my take on that is as useful as those medium can be for recording information, fighting is a physical thing and therefore it should be recorded in a physical way. If you, instead of making your kata, you decide, oh, I'll just put it all on kind of DVD and pass that on to my students as a, as a means to preserve it. At some point, you've still got to upload what's on the media into the body. The great thing about using kata is you've already done that. Okay, because the, the, the recording media, if you like, is the same thing that you're going to actually use to empl uh, uh, employ it. So it's like having a program running in on the hardware rather than sitting on the CD. So that's kind of a slight side issue. But for me, you know, when people say, would you replace Kata uh, with modern technology? No, because, you know, I'm going to be using my, bot ring, uh, my body in conflict. So I should use my body to record those methods. I would still stick with Kata. And in terms of, you know, the, it's a good question, this, I like it. The, the, the general point of um, including, uh, you know, the, the avoidance and posturing elements. So, I mean, on the wider sense, there's lots of elements of avoidance that are completely and utterly non-physical. There's no physical way of recording them. Um, your, um, your, you know, in terms of your awareness skills, your ability to see what's going on, your ability to see, to see a situation develop. You know, these are all non-physical things. Um, you can't record, the, the, it doesn't involve physical movement, so the cat would be an inappropriate medium to record those. Uh, in terms of, you know, the, the escaping aspects of it, that I, I do, when we do our bunkai drills, for those who've seen them, we, as soon as you've got the opponent in a position where they're weakened, we escape, we run away, because then we're ingraining the right habit of running away. Now, if you were to put that in the kata, it, I would suggest it would be quite frustrating and inefficient. Because you'd be doing a couple of moves, run to the other end of the dojo, do a couple of moves, run to the end of the dojo. You know, there comes a point where you think, actually, let's just forget the running away. We, we can include that in, in practice with the partner. And to make the kata more efficient, we won't include that element. Okay, we'll make sure we include that in, 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 in partner practice. So what I would say to that is, I don't think 
Catter would be a bad medium, really, for those kind of things. I don't, I don't think Catter would be a good media to record those kind of um, uh, non-physical skills. Oh, one other thing, yeah, is it because preemption is something that people talk about. You know, where's preemption in the Catter? The issue with that is what people need to remember is that preemption is a tactic. It's not a technique. Okay, so um, <laughs> you could use any physical motion to preempt. Um, you know, there's some better than others, but you know, you could you could deliver a punch, you could slap them, you could sweep them, you know, whatever it is you do. So uh, those methods are in kata, but you can't record the tactic. You know, I mean, in that way, you know, it's it's the idea of hitting first and at the right point is something you would need to drill with a partner. So it's talking them down. You know, that ability to kind of uh, communicate and to de-escalate conflict is not something that would be appropriate to record in physical skills. Um, so if it was me, what I would do, I would say is, okay, cut is a, an efficient way to record the physical elements of conflict, being a physical thing. So that's what I'd use it for. For the non-physical elements, um, the, the, the kind of, someone like, say, preemption-based scenarios and escaping drills, um, you know, as in the running away bit at the side of it, I wouldn't record that within kata because it wouldn't be appropriate to do so. So, I mean, I guess the bottom line is we use kata for what it's good for, and that's recording the, um, the physical techniques. Uh, in terms of putting them into context, then you need a partner to do that, you know, to recreate the scenarios, to, uh, to actively drill them and everything else. And obviously the, the wider um, avoidance issues include things that are non-physical. So although they should be part of practice, they wouldn't fit into the kata, um, the kata too. So I hope that answers, you know, what I would do and also why we don't find these things in the kata, because I don't really think they're appropriate to be there. Um, you don't, in the middle of a kata, you don't do a, suddenly start talking, you know, uh, and trying to talk someone down, because you can't do that. It's a back and forth. You need a live kind of person to do that. You know, you need that. And as I said, we don't see the running away, because we see the techniques in order to disengage. You know, that would be appropriate to record them in there, but you don't see the running away and creating space because that would just be uh, an inappropriate um, thing to include in the catch. It would make it inefficient. Uh, the next um, question we've got is from Samuel Karl Fagentz. I hope I'm pronouncing his, his surname right there. Um, it's quite a, a, a long question, but a, a good one, I, f I feel, and it'll probably reflect a lot of people's experiences. So I'll, I'll read it out in full. It says, uh, Hello, Ian. I'm interested to know what you think about classes that try to incorporate both uh, the aspect of block kick punch kick and the realistic uh, bunkai at the same time as we know from previous podcasts you teach your students the kata and the bunkai at the same time so i imagine uh, there will be no confusion about the meaning of the kata and how it should be used many other schools including more than one that i have trained at are sympathetic to the idea of realistic bunkai but for reasons of loyalty to their their organization also teach uh, block kick punch as the prevailing uh, interpretation and merely show and play with the more realistic uh, interpretations amongst more senior students. While this would seem to be the best of both worlds to some, it does seem a little contradictory as instructors later cast scorn on the techniques and strategies that they themselves teach to junior students. I remember one taekwondo teacher who would teach middle forearm block as a reactive block through uh, step sparring up to mid-level in the belt system and then when they'd tell senior students above that that if they uh, could make the movement work in real world then they were superhuman which must have been demotivating for some. Uh, what do you think of the schools that train with bunkai at senior level only on an occasional basis? And also, uh, do you consider these students to be uh, adding a further combative efficiency to their training or are they just wasting their time? So, um, 
Again, it's a good question, that, and it reflects a lot of people's experiences, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So if, I can only give my take on this, but as all these answers are, but the idea of teaching uh, things as uh, the idea of guide as a steps forwards, punches with his hands on his hip from 10 feet away and um, you kind of block it with a lower block with your hand on your hip and all, all that kind of the stuff that we so often see, which is just, you know, we cover that in the Occam's Razor podcast. It just doesn't stand up to, um, to scrutiny. So, so I don't teach it at all is, is my thing on it because I just don't believe it adds anything. Uh, I, I know there are some who say, oh yeah, but you know, it can teach timing and distancing, but it can't. What it teaches is, it, okay, you learned A timing and A distancing, but that timing and distancing that you learn has no bearing whatsoever on real uh, conflict. It's a non-transferable skill. So um, I'm, I'm not a fan of it personally. I, I think it's a distraction from what we should be doing, and, and I see absolutely no value in it. However, I, I, I am aware that, you know, for other people, sometimes the, the training with a group, which is a good group in, in all of the ways, they get good quality sparring, they'll get you know, good quality um, uh, technical training, they, they, um, they enjoy the sessions, but they have this one element that they don't like, you see. Now, I would suggest, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater either. If that's the only club in your area... Uh, and they're giving you everything else you want in, in in bucket loads really efficiently and well, I wouldn't kind of reject all of that just because you have to spend a little bit of time on things that you think are ridiculous. Um, so it's some of these things you've just got to kind of suck it up and, and, and just kind of grin your way through it, really. I, I also understand that for the some groups, if they're like if you're a group within a larger group, that what can happen is within a given dojo, there may not be grand believers in that kind of block kick punch stuff, but because it can be a... Re a grading requirement in force for an on high, then they've got to learn it. So I, I do know some groups who do that, where in the dojo they have this, okay, this is what we teach is the, the realism of it, this is we believe how it really works, but if you're going to get through the grading syllabus, then unfortunately you've got to do this stuff alongside it as well. Um, which is unfortunate and I think more and more people are kind of moving away from that and that, that kind of traditional if you can call it that baggage that was picked up from the kind of 1940s, 50s, that seems to be kind of fading away a little bit. Value is becoming fairly obvious to people. So um, in terms of the idea of, of doing one type of, you know, block kick punch then a higher grade suddenly switching, well, I don't really agree with that either. Because, you know, um, you sometimes get that, when should the real bunkai be taught? Well, the answer is from day one. You should be teaching realistic stuff from the very day you begin. Because as most students are, you know, most students are coming to you because they want to learn that particular skill. Now, if you got a craftsman in your house and said, look, I want you to kind of paint the walls or whatever, and he said, oh, well, you know, I'll do that in like 10 years' time, but I'm going to do some other stuff first, you just wouldn't accept that. You'd say, nah, that's not what I want you for. So when people go to you to learn um, practical self-defense skills, that's what you should be teaching them from the very beginning. Um, you, you know, you shouldn't be saying, oh, okay, you've got to do all this stuff first, and then we'll eventually get to that. So um, I've got quite a lot of sympathy with anyone who has to um, uh, go through that. But my own take on it is, well, I understand that some people have to do it for political reasons, if we can call it that. We're better off without it. You know, if you've got to do it for political reasons, then that, that's fine. You know, if you're getting uh, lots of other benefits and this is kind of the, the, the payment you've got to make for those other benefits, well, that's fine too. But, you know, I, I, ideally, I, I think you should be able to get you know all those things without having to do things that we know aren't workable. It's a waste of training time. You could just spend it on, on so much more efficient things. So, um, 
<laughs> but again, you know, before we leave that one, I've got to say, I do appreciate it's not that simple. And uh, if you do uh, in a dojo, there always are these political elements, you see. So um, maybe not ideal, but sometimes I think it's just one of these things that, you know, we have to do in the uh, the, the interim. So I hope that's of, of some interest to um, to Samuel and, and, every, and everybody else. Um, okay, the next one we've got uh, is, is one on competitive uh, karate. That's by uh, Carlos again, and he says that he, he trains in a, a dojo which has a strong emphasis on competitive karate, uh, which he really enjoys. Um, he, he loves the way that his sensei teaches it. He enjoys the physical conditioning, but he also wanted to do a more um, uh, practical fighting system. And he was wondering about um, what was the most effective way of combining uh, trainings, you know, half and half. Or And he says, my question would be whether you have any recommendations for making the most of cross-training in different styles. Uh, by the way... Um, it, my sensei is fully supportive of this idea, which is great. I mean, we talked about it in the main part. I've always had instructors that were very supportive of that as well. And if you've got that, you've got a great sensor. I also, as we've said before, I, I'm not anti-competitive karate. and I don't think anyone should be. There's some great things that are, are developed by it. It can be massively enjoyable for lots of people. Uh, there's a great deal of skill involved. There's a great deal of athleticism involved. Uh, I think the only problem we have is when people kind of confuse competitive karate with real fighting. Or, and you shouldn't do that. Competitive karate should be judged as competitive karate. It shouldn't be judged as something it's not. So, uh, and I think, you know, with the martial arts, we should all do what we get the most enjoyment out of. If we enjoy uh, the competitive side of it, there's no reason why we can't do that and do the realism side of it too. Um, there's sometimes the argument, yeah, but you'll get confused in a real situation and you, you'll drop into competitive methods. And I just, you know, I don't quite buy that, right? On the grounds that the two environments are so radically different, it will be very difficult to intuitively confuse the two. And where the tales come from of, oh, the competitive karate champion who in a real fight pulled a punch... The reason that happens is not because he's training competitive karate. It's because he's only ever trained to pull punches. It's the only thing he's got. The guy, on the other hand, who's trained in competitive karate and has trained at you know blasting his, his hands through pads and in the mess and uh, chaos of cl close-range conflict, the guy who's trained realistically for self-defense as well, the very nature of the environment will trigger the right response in him because it, it, it'll be nothing like his competitive karate. So the subconscious part of his brain won't, won't leap to that as the, the natural motion. It'll leap to what's most like it, which will be his self-defense training. So you can do both. And in terms of, you know, the best way to kind of uh, combine them, I would suggest that's really down to the individual. It, it's not something I, I, could, um, I could advise on, really. It, it's all down to, you know, what you particularly want out of the, of the martial arts itself. We've all got to do that. We've all got to do that. I mean, a, a good example recently for me is the, the judo training is something that I massively enjoy. But it takes second place to the karate. And as I've been very recent, uh, busy recently, I haven't been to the judo for a while. Um, simply because of the basis, okay, the karate takes priority. Um, and I would suggest this is the same for Carlos or anyone else who's in this situation. You've got to say, oh, well, what do I most want from training? What do I enjoy the most? And then you structure it uh, along those, uh, th th those lines. Uh, as, as regards general points on cross-training as well, um, one of the things I think that, that sometimes happens is people go into other arts with the desire, obviously, to, to add it to what they already do, and, and that's great. But you've really got to get a good flavor for the system. So whenever you go into a dojo, the best thing you should do is, okay, I'm just here to learn. I'll learn everything that you're going to teach me. Uh, I'll, I, I won't 
stand there and tell you, you know, what I would do if, or that wouldn't work when we do it because, and all that kind of stuff. You go with that empty cup mind. You learn everything you can. And then you can decide later on, well, which elements of that are useful for you and which aren't. Because having done that, what I found is certain things that, although I wouldn't make practical use of them, I'm still glad that I learnt them. You know, I still find them, them interesting and useful. So it's a bit of a non-answer, really, but it's an honest answer. And all I would suggest is it depends. Um, if you're mixing your competitive training and your realistic training, it's just you've got to decide what's, um, what, what's best for, for you um, and prioritise them, uh, them accordingly. Uh, the next question we have is from Brent Yamamoto, and he says, We have several instructors teaching different arts in my dojo, um, karate, aikido, etc. All focused on real application, meaning the majority of time is spent on the crossover between fighting and self-protection on your martial map. All very good, but I would like to introduce some more strictly self-protection material. How do you adequately cover the principles of both karate and self-protection given both time and business constraints? Uh, limited mat time due to sharing space with other instructors, and our marketing strategy is basically being traditional martial arts, which I don't see changing. Uh, there is crossover, of course, but I think we're uh, already largely doing that. Um, we don't want to, to, to be all things to all people, but would like to offer a, a, a few things more. It's a difficult balance, so how do I do it? <laughs> or how do you do it? Um, and Brent says, uh, very much enjoyed meeting and training with you at Crossing the Pond, and I'd hope to do it again someday. So this, and I'll just, before I answer Brent's question, see, this is the, my favourite part of my job, all right? The, the fact that I get to travel to teaching martial arts is the people I meet. And it, it's just great, this, because as, as, as soon as I saw the name, you know, Brent Yamamoto, like, oh yeah, you know, just jump straight back, I remember talking with you at the event, I remember uh, eating um, some Mexican food with you and your students, and um, uh, it, it's, it, I just love the fact that I get to meet so many people, so I, I, I got on well with, with Brent, and it's um, had a lot in common in the way we view things, and really nice to kind of chat to you again, so hello Brent, <laughs> and pass on the best to your, your students for me. So, um, yeah, alright, so what I do, so this is how I do it, in my karate teaching, it's it's I, I teach the, the the karate obviously predominantly it's a physical side of it all the non-physical sides of it are integrated into it so uh, for the grading syllabus they have to be able to explain you know the color codes the threat pyramids we have them doing role plays um for the gradings they have to practice their escape techniques um so they have lots of scenario based stuff um in terms of the 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 other wider kind of personal security issues discussions on law um awareness uh, uh, training um home security all that kind of stuff that that tends to just be be integrated in what we, we do. So at various points during the training, there'll be little short discussions on these kind of things. Um, the thing with this as well is, uh, for the, like if you take a physical technique, it has to be repeated over and over and over and over again to get to get good at it. So so it takes a very a very long time to do it. But you can impart, give people information on, on the best ways to kind of uh, drive the car safely, for example, mobile security. You can tell somebody that, and they can start enacting that information almost immediately. You know, simple things. You know, if you're traveling, lock your doors. You know, don't leave things on the back seat with the doors open because people will jump in and steal them. Uh, don't have your windows wound right the way down in slow-moving traffic because people can reach in. Um, there's all that kind of stuff. Um, when you're at high speed, you might want to think about um, uh, opening the door. So if you crash, the doors are easier to open. There's, there's all this kind of stuff. You can tell people this, and they can start doing it immediately in tomorrow. So integrating that into the classes is pretty easy. 
because it, 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 because it's 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 a small amount of information within the, with what you're doing and with martial artists um, obviously you have them for a long period of time so you can drip feed that information in very easily so it's small amounts of information over a long period of time it means you can cover these things in incredible depth which I'm, I'm sure Brent and everyone listening and who thinks that way probably does it as well in terms of the pure self-protection side of things so um, the almost like the non-physical, the personal security elements. I, I teach that separately from the karate as well. So I have my karate students, then I have my self-defense or self-protection students. Um, as it happens, once I finish this podcast, I'm going to go and do one of those classes tonight. And these are people who will train with me. Maybe It'll maybe be a presentation. So I'll, I'll do a short kind of two hours presentation on various security issues, and then I'm done. Okay, I'm, I'm, I may see those students again. I may not. Hopefully I've given them some things to think about, some safety tips that they can enact immediately. I might also run short courses, you know, like kind of four odd weeks or so. Um, and again, we're not really concentrating on physical skills because you can't really learn many physical skills there. What I tend to teach in those sessions, the only technique really, is um, um, controlling distance, um, talking, action triggers, and a big, powerful, preemptive slap before people fleeing. The rest of it's the non-physical side of things. So uh, it gets integrated fully into the karate classes, and for the self-protection training, it gets separated out of it. As a, as a business thing, what I would suggest is that that is something else you can offer to people. So you have your regular karate classes, and then once in a while they'll say, okay, we're doing a, a self-protection course, uh, people can come along, a personal security course, and that's a, it's, it's, it's an open thing. These things don't run on and on and on. If you've got a self-protection class that's running you know, more than six weeks, you're not really teaching self-protection anymore. You're starting to move into the realms of martial arts and fighting. Um, so so I, I tend to keep them separate. It also, I found, is, is a fairly good way to get students um, in as well. So we'll do, um, okay, we'll do a free self-protection course to anyone who wants to do it. So, you know, I'll do self-protection courses for local groups and schools and things like this. They'll just ask me to, cook, to, to come in. It's very rare that I charge for those. A couple of reasons for it is, uh, one is, uh, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. You know, it's a good thing to give people information that can keep themselves safe. So we don't, I don't make any charge for those. Unless it's obviously big businesses and things, in which case they've got the money to pay for it. But <laughs> for local community things and things, I don't charge for that. All right, um, I, I do it for free because I think it's a good thing to do for my, my local community. The other thing is, then people get to meet you, they get to talk with you. Um, they may be interested in the physical side of things as well. In which case, you can direct them towards your, your martial arts practice. You know, your your wider um, combative training. You know, the, the physical side of it, um, the dojo work, and, and so it can be a good lead into that as well. And also, I mean, these people may not come into your dojo, but they might wander off into the big wide world, tell people what a good course they've been on, how they enjoyed it, and you make contacts that way. So, um, so, so what I would say is separate it. So, so, um, so one thing, run separate self-defense courses, uh, short courses, and integrate it. So make, for in the, within the martial arts classes, you make it fundamental to, to part of what you do. So they get the wide, the martial arts students, if you like, the students in the dojo, get all the self-protection information as well. But they'll get it over a longer period of time with small, short little interjections as part of the, the, the training. Uh, when you're doing the self-protection courses, they get it all thrown at them at once. And that may lead into them taking up the martial arts, you see. So, um, I hope that's of, of use to um, everybody and uh, uh, Brent found that of uh, some interest as well. Um, it's, it's a, I like that one, actually. We should maybe do a, a separate podcast as well on um, karate and its relationship to self-defense. So. 
Okay, so ne- next one we've got from Paul Grew, and this is the uh, um, final one from Facebook. He said, uh, Hi, Ian, lots of kids turn to martial arts as a means of dealing with bullies, either on their own volition or by their parents. Uh, what are your thoughts on how karate can help those kids deal with their issues? I've seen several occasions where kids have developed great technique in karate but still continue to be victims, uh, and the learn-it-but-do-not-use-it approach can be uh, um, good advice for not getting expelled, but it doesn't give uh, kids uh, alternative options. Well, one thing got to be you know, hand on heart, quite honest, I don't teach kids. Okay, I have a, well, I have a very small number that, that train with me, so this is not an area that I'm an expert in or that I have much knowledge of. Um, so I, I can just give you my own opinion on this. On the website, uh, if you go to the, the article section, uh, the guest writer section, there's um, self-protection training for children. There's three articles there by Jamie Club. And Jamie's a good uh, friend of mine. And, and without a doubt, uh, of all the people I've talked to, I think Jamie's done the most work on this. And has a really, really good handle on uh, on self-protection side of things for children, both in terms of defending themselves from each other and uh, the wider security issues and, and uh, adults and everything else. So I direct you to that, really. The main one is, so for me, though, is I don't think being honest that karate is a good solution for bullying problems at school i mean it's sometimes what parents immediately think of but there are elements you know i remember in back in the days where i did teach kids i had one guy who um it was a self-esteem issue for him really i think because he had low self-esteem the kind of other kids picked up on this would would go at him would bully him and of course that knocks his self-esteem down even further now when he his father brought him to us saying okay i want him to learn because he's getting bullied at school. I pointed out that, you know, maybe he should take this up with the school, but we're happy to have him as a student. Anyways, the years went by, his self-esteem through the karate came up because this was a safe environment he could go to. Everyone there was friendly to him. Everyone there acknowledged what he did. Um, We would give him plenty of positive feedback and reinforcement. Uh, And this really did help build his esteem up. And it was that, talking to his dad, you know, a few years later, that ultimately led to the bullying stopping and uh, it having very little emotional effect. You know, so when the in the past where the kids had maybe called him names and it would be really upsetting, they would do it now and he wouldn't care because he had another group of people telling him that you know that he wasn't those things that those ones told he was, and the group of people who were telling him nice things about himself were people he generally held in higher regard and higher esteem. So there's that element of it, you know. But I, but for, I I would suggest you know that the, the best way to always deal with this is you, you take it up with the, the the schools. You see, the school has an obligation to make sure that people can go to school and learn and, and not get bullied and hassled. Um, it's it's never you know quite as clean cut as that. And I know that you know some schools don't maybe address these issues as thoroughly as they should. Uh, but, I, but I don't really think teaching kids to kick and punch is the right answer. Now, one thing that can be really useful is the escape skills. Um, so, you know, like uh, breakaway skills and those kind of things. And again, in my dojo, they're practiced, you know, by the adults and things, you know, and there's no reason at all why you couldn't do that for kids. Um, so they can get themselves out of these situations and they're not kind of like trying to fight to the finish. This was particularly important if they're getting picked on by groups as well, you know. So there's no easy one for that for me. I would suggest, you know, check out Jamie's his articles with it. Uh, I think when you're looking at it, it's always got to be a part of the, the big picture. You've got to get, you know, if it's schools, parents, local authorities, whatever involved to kind of stop to help stop it. Uh, and I don't think the karate should be viewed as, God, that's the solution. If we teach little Johnny to be able to throw elbows, he'll be fine. Because it, it doesn't really work that way. So, um... um it, it, for my own children, it's the same. The advice I would give my own kids, you know, if someone at school was bothering them, first thing, go and tell a teacher. 
you know, that would be it, you know, get the teacher to sort it out. As soon as you come home, make sure you tell me and your mum. So if it's not been dealt with, we can deal with it too. Um, if the, and again, for me, if my kids were in danger of getting physically hurt by another child, I have absolutely no problem at all with my kids hitting the other kids. You know, if, if that's the only option that's left available to them. Uh, and my ch children are aware of that. I've, I've told them this, you know, that they may get into trouble from other people if they, they, if they have no option but to hit another child, but they'll never get into trouble from me. Um, so they know that they have that there. Now, now, again, I'll just make that clear. I have well-behaved kids. <laughs> and my kids are, are well aware that they would be in big, big trouble if they ever were to hit anyone without good reason. Um, but if, if, you know, if someone else is going to harm them, then they have my permission to use, um, to use, use physical force, regardless if they get it from anyone else or not. So, yeah, not a clean issue. Not, not, but I would suggest, Paul, best person to, uh, to look at with this be Jamie Club. I'll direct you to, to him, you know. And uh, I think, as I remember, his contact details are on those articles as well. So he does self-defense courses for children as well. So if uh, anyone out there is listening to this uh, wants to do, uh, like, a, a good practical self-defense course for the, the kind of the children within their group, uh, strongly recommend you check out uh, uh, Jamie's stuff. So the next question we've got is from Peter Jones. He says, I've managed to overtrain several times in the past. Uh, you frequently uh, post about your training regime, uh, which I do. For those that don't know, on Facebook and Twitter, I always put what I've done on any given day because people seem to like it. And he says, what um, advice do you have about rest as part of your uh, frequent martial arts training? How much work is too much? And, and for me, I think that's down to the individual. You've, you've, you've just got to work that out based on um, your own body, really, and you've got to listen to uh, your body. Um, I, I can't train the way now that I did 20 years ago. You know, my, my, my body is now different from what it was. It takes longer to recover than it did. So, you know, some of the ways I used to train when I was in my early 20s were looking back. Were fine for me then. Wouldn't be fine for me now. It would be, be overtraining now, chronic overtraining now. So you, you can't listen to your body is one thing that that's very important. You do need to make sure you get uh, enough rest in as well. Um, and, and that not days off necessarily, but even things like good night's sleep can make a massive difference. You know, um, a good diet, making sure that you get eight hours sleep every single night. Um, uh, good sleep as well. Um, if you're the sort of person who um, you know, drinks a glass of wine before you go to bed, even small amounts of alcohol can really mess up your, your sleep cycle. Um, too much caffeine late in the day can do the same thing as well. So, you know, good night's sleep, good diet. Um, I, uh, in terms of rest days, what I currently have is I train, um, I always have one day off a week, which is Wednesday in preparation for the, the big group train on the Thursday. Uh, and then I'll have one floating rest day as well. So I can take on at any point during the week if I feel, you know what, I'm, I'm run down, I'm not up to training today, I'll have that day off. And I'll, if I don't need that day off, I won't take it. But I've got it there as an option. It's a kind of like a psychological way for me to make it easy for me to take a day off. Because in all honesty, I find it takes more discipline for me not to train than it does to train. So yeah, you've just got to, got, to, got to listen to your body. Cycle your training is one thing. So that, uh, Another thing as well, so that if you've got a particularly hard day one day, then do something a bit lighter or a bit different the, the, the day after. So for example, if I've done weights one day, then a run might be an, an idea the, the next day. Um, if I've done a really kind of intense uh, front expiring session, then I might want to do some gentle cutter the day after. So you, you just kind of cycle it uh, correctly and then making sure that you get enough sleep, making sure your diet's good and just listening to your body if you genuinely um, not up for training that day not just because you know oh, I, I quite fancy an evening on the couch or whatever but you can just feel it in your body you've got to be honest with yourself just think okay I'm, I'm not up for it today it, it, it would and the thing to remember as well is that 
sometimes training can be counterproductive. If it causes you to get injured or it causes you to get ill, it doesn't make you a better martial artist. So some days you improve more by doing nothing, if, if you know what I mean, giving your body a chance to recover, giving it a chance to grow. So uh, There's a balance to be struck and we've just got to make sure that we, uh, we listen to our bodies, I think. Okay, a related question probably is from Kyle Buttress, and he said, is there a, an expectation or a difference between a full-time, and in brackets he's got professional, uh, martial artist and a weekend warrior? Which, by weekend warrior, I guess he means like a recreational martial artist. Now, for me, there's a massive difference between the two. All right? I mean, that's, that's a kind of the simple answer. I should probably as well, just before we go into this, the, the term professional, when I hear that, professional means to me someone who makes the living doing something, as in it's their profession. So in my case, I am a professional martial artist. It's how I make my living. Um, and it has to be the way I make my living. Because I want to write on the martial arts, I want to research them, I want to do all the things I do on the website, I want to train as much as I do, I want to teach as much as I do, I don't have time for a day job. So I realized several years ago that something had to go. I either had to scale back my ambitions in the martial arts or I had to get rid of the day job. I chose to get rid of the day job. <laughs> had <laughs> to make the martial arts uh, my, my profession. So that, that's what I do. There are some people, though, who maybe they don't write as much as I do and they don't teach as much as I do, but they'll probably train every bit as much uh, and, and hold down day jobs, you know. So they've got enough time to train enough. They'll train in the morning. They may be running the lunch hours. They may be training when they get home from work. So they can be training three times a day and still holding down a day job. Obviously, if you want to write and do everything else on top of that, then someone's got to give at some point. But uh, so... The, the difference, though, uh, which I think is what Carl's driving at, is the difference between the person who trains at it like, like full on, you know, that it's their thing, and then the recreational trainer. There's a big difference, and, and I don't think that there's a problem there, though. The person who um, trains recreationally, I think that's fine. I think the martial arts are for everybody. The person who says, you know, I want to go to the dojo twice a week, work up a bit of a sweat, meet my friends, do something I enjoy, get some fun out of it, de-stress a little bit with it, wonderful, you know, that's great, it's fantastic. The only problem with that, I think, is when people expect to get professional level results, if you like, when they're putting in recreational hours, because that, that won't work. If, you, if you're training kind of twice a week and expecting to reach the same levels as the guy who's training twice a day, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think that, that's a problem. You need to be realistic about what your training is going to deliver. And if people are uh, recreational and enjoy the recreational martial arts and understand that that means that there's a limit to how far they can go while they're doing that, fine. You know, um, and then, of course, you've got the guys who are, which I would imagine is probably most of the people listening to this, <laughs> who are the karate nuts, as I call them, who are just fanatical about it, you know, who train on a very, very consistent basis and hence reach generally higher levels. So there is a difference between the two, but, um, yeah, and that's fine. I think the martial arts should be for everybody. And if people are clear on what they're getting out of the martial arts and what the training is going to give them, then that's, um, that's all good. So... Uh, Okay, that's a, that's the questions I've got for this month. <laughs> uh, I hope you all find this interesting. By all means, give me feedback if you want me to cover more questions or fewer questions or um, however you want this section to to, to work. Uh, the general consensus seems to be that people really like them and they like the fact we cover a variety of topics. So um, if you are happy to keep doing it this way, it's, it's totally okay with me. If you've got an alternative view, if you think they're getting a bit long or um, you'd rather we covered fewer or in greater depth or whatever, you know, just just let me know. You know, usual thing at ianabernethy.com but that concludes uh, this month's uh, questions
Well, that concludes this month's podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you found it uh, entertaining. Uh, Some good information in there for you, hopefully. And I hope you found part of it thought-provoking as well. Uh, Please also uh, keep in touch uh, between now and the next podcast. And the easiest ways to do that will be uh, facebook.com forward slash Ian Abernethy. I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y. And we're also, uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, Ian Abernethy. Um, and also keep in touch via the website, uh, ianabernethy.com. Also, if you have enjoyed this podcast and, and you do want to uh, make a donation to it, then obviously just pop along to the website, uh, click on the shopping section, and you'll see the thank you uh, part of it uh, on there. Um, and obviously, you know, if, if, you, if you can't donate or you don't want to donate, that's not a problem at all. If you've been buying the books and DVDs, you shouldn't be donating because you, you've already made your contributions. If you're uh, a regular at the seminar, same applies there. Um, and if you've got uh, you know, nothing spare but you still want to lend your support to the podcast, then just you know, tell your clubmates about it, tell a few friends about it um get ready have a good think about some questions for the question answer section so there's uh, there's lots of ways you can uh, help support these uh, podcasts and make sure that we bring you uh, the kind of information that you you want to receive so thanks once again for everyone listening in i I really do appreciate it and until next month uh, have a great month okay speak soon bye now bye bye